Good morning, I'm Patrolman Bobby Newton, and I am here with your episode three, part two, with the mental health awareness. And this morning, we've got Dr. Shannon Cubria-Ferris, Corporal Will Rogers, and Rachel Alcantara with us this morning. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Hello. So uh, we'll start with Corporal Will Rogers. Can you give us a little bit of information about you and kind of your background and how you got involved in this? I'm Corporal Will Rogers. I've been with the police department since 2016. Um, I was approached kind of at the beginning of the year by Chief and Assistant Chief Barker about starting the co-responder unit and just kind of building it from the ground up. So you've been with the department since 16? Yeah. Did you have any prior law enforcement experience or did no. you start with KPD? No, I started with KPD. So okay. I had other jobs. Right. Um, and then when I joined the academy, this was my preferred destination i was lucky and got hired on awesome. right out of the academy and you just worked the road from 2016 until we started the co-responder unit that's right i was just a patrolman i was an evidence tech i was on a special response team and i got promoted to corporal and then took this position over good deal and rachel you want to give us a little information about you and kind of your background i moved here with my family about a year and a half ago from maui hawaii um, and before that i lived in california uh, and that's where i received all of my education master's in social work and I'm currently working towards my licensure to be a licensed clinical social worker um, and then as far as this particular job and experience with crisis that's fairly new to me I've done small crises in different jobs but a lot of my history comes more from dialysis social work child protective services and case management with people that have mental health issues Thank you, Rachel, and thank you, Will. And we met Dr. Shannon last episode, so we kind of got a little bit of background. I don't think anything has changed since then, has it? Let's hope not. <laughs> so uh, the co-responder unit, that's what we're going to be focusing on with this episode. How did the idea of the co-responder unit come about, and when did it start? So it started this year, um, boots on the ground in February. Um, but our understanding was actually it started about seven and a half years ago, the assistant chief Parker, and he had this idea idea uh, to have a mental health unit to help with all the mental health related calls. At the time, um, it wasn't greatly accepted. There was really no interest. He kept on it and then uh, collaborated uh, with community counseling. Through that collaboration, uh, a federal grant was discovered that we could combine forces and actually get it started. So we started with, in January with the Community Counseling Center and then boots on the ground in February with uh, Cape Girardeau Police Department. Awesome. This is fairly new, especially for this area, right? Is there any yes. other department in our area that offers this? No, there there are a couple of others in the state of Missouri, but we are the only one here. Uh, and as far as we're aware of, we may be the, the most remote or rural co-responder program in the country. Uh, most co-responder programs are either in large cities or very near large cities, uh, frankly, because of all the resources available, because you need access. And so we're in a very limited resource area that makes it difficult, a lot of challenges, but well worth the effort to get uh, folks the help and support or resources that they may need. That's awesome. And I, and I love the idea of us being a department that others will model after us. Mm -hmm. You know, they see what we're doing, and we're going to share some of the stats here in a minute of how the, it's taking our officers away from those calls and getting them to the calls they need to go to. So it's great to have something that they can model after. We and, do have a lot of attention, by the way, of 
uh, other departments looking at us, yeah. uh, other remote departments looking at us. And so we've got, gained a lot of attention for what we're doing. And when we go in the, you know, the data, you'll, you'll hear that we're been very successful. Other departments are looking at us because they want it in their areas. Just so that the listeners know, Southeast Missouri has a number of folks that are seriously mentally ill, um, but there's also a ton of people in psychological distress. That would be everyday distress, and they may not know how to handle it. So it's not just remote areas may have a lot of mental illness. It's just there's not a lot of resources. And so we're able to offer that resource and be that first response to get them the help they need. And that's why other departments are really taking a close look at us, because if we're making it work, they can too. Right. Corporal Rogers, do you want to talk a little bit about kind of the stats, the numbers, maybe the calls that you guys respond to, and how it's taken our officers and putting them you know, back in work to where they need to go versus being tied up on these calls? You know, I can tell you just from working on the streets, that was – it really does tie up our officers a lot. In the past, we would get dispatched. It could be anything from a domestic to a trespassing. Um, nothing comes out as a mental health call. And we would get on scene, try to figure out, you know, what the magic solution for it was on scene. And doing the data, kind of looking back on what we used to do, officers' average time on scene was about just a little over an hour. And sometimes it would be more than one officer, depending on how, you know, the actions of that individual. And so since we've implemented the uh, co-responder unit, Basically, an officer can ask for us to respond. I'll go out there with either Shannon or Rachel, and that officer can get back on the street and kind of do actual police work. Since we've been started, uh, we're down to about 13 minutes average time on scene for an officer. That's so, awesome. Yeah, That's we, really good. We go from you know an hour to 13 minutes, so that officer can get back out and do police work. We'll still put in that hour or however long it takes with that individual. It's been tremendous from the police side of things. The officers really appreciate the fact that you know, they don't have the magic solution. And then going into that, really, in the past, our only solution was either bring somebody to jail or take them to the emergency room. And not to say that the, not every individual needs to go to the emergency room, but the hospitals are over, are crowded, too, and they're busy. Um, so if we can connect them to the appropriate services. And that data was about a little over half, about 53% of the people we dealt with were going to jail or ER as just when you had police involvement. And that's down to about 16% now. And, wh and what's happening is we're really just getting that person connected to appropriate resources. You know, just because you're off your meds or you're having some kind of mental health crisis doesn't mean you need to be in an emergency room or in a jail cell. And, you know, this is just the inception. We're not even a, have a full year under our belt yet. Right. Now. So as we go along, it's going to, those times are going to get better. You guys will probably expand your hours to where you're available more. And it's just going to cut down those times and, and get the appropriate services to those individuals quicker. Right. So I think it's really good. Um, not to mention that, as most people know, we're shorthanded on the on the street as it is. So whenever we can take uh, where we were tying up two officers for an hour or more, uh, now they can be there for 10 minutes. You guys show up and provide those services. So it's incredible we have that availability. Would you agree, Will, that – uh, when we came on, that the officers have a better idea of how many mental health-related calls you were on? Yeah, well, I think every officer knew how many we were going to, but as an officer, you know, it's really pulling you away from what you signed up to do. We knew there were a lot of calls we were going to that we didn't have an answer for. And it gets frustrating, especially when you're short shift and you've got reports to do and everything else. Why am I going out and dealing with this person again? And the officers now, they're very... I don't want to use the word thankful, but they're appreciative of what we do for sure. A lot of our officers are actually CIT trained as well. So they're 
capable of handling those situations, but that's not their main area of focus either. Right. Where you guys, that's your main area of focus. You're trained on it, and you can handle it probably a lot faster than, you know, your average officer would. Absolutely, yeah. Rachel, I know we kind of talked about this a little bit before the podcast started. Are there different areas of the community that seem to be more receptive or more standoffish from the mental health side and seeking help and assistance? We actually record things like race or ethnicity when we go out on calls, and I would say more than, what, you think 50% tend to be white? Yes, yeah. Oh, um, way, way over, yeah. It could be higher than 50%, probably 70%. It's pretty even between male and female, but it tends to be a predominantly white response that we go out to. It's just in general, this is an area that has more white people in general. As far as other communities, I'll just say, in particular, minorities, blacks, Hispanics. I know there's a few Indian families and other kind of subpopulations in the neighborhood, they're less likely to seek out mental health treatment. It's still very stigmatized. And so we've come across that a few times where somebody else has called and they weren't necessarily receptive, or sometimes there's different family barriers and different dynamics about denial in general of having a mental health issue. Sometimes as easy as just depression, not knowing how to talk about somebody who has depression and therefore denying the depression. Um, and it just kind of a cycle but it's pretty easy to say that it's across the board. It doesn't yes, matter what uh, ethnicity or race. Correct. There's mental health in every community, Correct. every area, Even every walk of life. as far as income. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. You could be millionaire, still have a mental health problem. You yep. could be extremely poor and have a mental health problem. So it, it knows no bounds. And w- when we talk about mental health, it's not – there's something wrong with you forever. Correct. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with there's you There's something at all. out of balance that needs to be addressed. Correct. Most of the time when we talk about mental health, um, and to go along with what Rachel was saying, is, is that it is highly stigmatized. We're in an area that it's still highly stigmatized. And so when we talk about mental health, it, it often leaves a bitter taste in people's mind that we're already talking about something that is wrong, damaged, or broken, that can't be fixed. When we need to be having the conversation about mental health, that how people react to situations often is very normal. It's a normal reaction, but it leaves its mark. And if you don't process that, then it accumulates and it builds, and then it manifests into physical symptoms, back pain, headaches, all kinds of other things. And those are the warning signs. And so you want to lean into that and take care of that. We don't talk about it like that we should yeah. and we should have more I mean, conversations about it it's no different if i fell and broke my arm that's i want right. to go see a doctor that's they're right. going to fix it and i'm going to get better we're going to move on it's the same thing with your mental health you've got to have those checkups and you've got to take the steps needed to visit the doctor well and, I, and i'll kind of touch on that a little bit too and one of the things that we don't really address as society is the other people impacted so it might be your spouse or your children or your brother or sister. A lot of times that's a person who's calling us because someone doesn't want their problems to be known. But we keep track of that too, the number of people that are impacted outside of that individual. And talking about the number of people impacted, do you think we're seeing more crises now than, say, 10 years ago? Or do you think it's just coming to light more and out in the open? Having a program like this, the you know, first responders to mental health, and we're keeping the data, as both Will and Rachel were already saying, we're able to let the department and the community know 
There's a huge number. So to answer your question, you have three people here that their purpose is to identify mental health calls and to offer assistance when needed. Before that time, what did we have in this area or community to do that? We relied on data that may have been more vague or gray from counseling centers or the ERs. Now you have a unit saying, here it is. So I just want to add some context to that because there is a lot. And I'll go further. As you were saying, across the board, we were charged with offering assessments maybe one or two a week, similar to other health professionals in the community. That's not what our community needed. They needed first responders. Uh, They needed that more of an ambulance type of urgency to help them with the next service. And in doing that, then our numbers skyrocketed just as soon as we understood what the community needed and wanted. And once we gave it to them, and now the community knows that we're here and they're going to know even more after this podcast, I hope, that they know that our services are available. And so all the context that we've been servicing has just been skyrocketing. Is that saying that the men- mental health has always been there or are we giving them an option that is more neutral, less judging uh, and more receptive and quick? And so now they're more willing to use it. Well, and I'll I'll add to that, too. I mean, I think it's always been there. I know I grew up in my family with multiple people in my immediate family with different mental illness disorders. You know, my mother's bipolar. She won't be mad that I say that. You know, we grew up going to the pharmacy to get her meds. And here's the thing. It's always been there. We always dealt with it a different way. And now, you know, we have somebody who can actually come and hold your hand to get you into services. A lot of people just don't know how to utilize services. And that's kind of what Shannon and Rachel are here to do. We're not going to be your therapist, so to speak, but we will get you to somebody who can help you. Right. And immediately, like within the next 15 minutes, if, you, if, you, if you're willing to go. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people live busier lives now than they did 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. You and know? social media. Social yeah. media, people are able to broadcast it to everybody and, yep. and don't understand the repercussions when they go and post something that sounds crazy to everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a lot more accessibility to it. So do you guys have any success stories you'd like to share as far as some calls you've been on? We have a ton. Yeah, I was going to say there's so many. (laughs) I mean, you know, the one that I think we've talked about a lot is a gentleman who um, was chronically homeless basically half his life. He was addicted to methamphetamine. He was probably undiagnosed mental illness, um, severe mental illness, by the way, and not medicated. The fix for him was he would either get arrested or get thrown into the ER, they would give him a prescription. But the problem is he was homeless. He would lose a physical prescription before he could make it to a pharmacy. And he didn't have any money to get this prescription filled. We've dealt with him over 30 times in about three weeks. And it took a long time. As baby, we talk about baby steps. I mean, really, really baby steps. This guy eventually was asking for help. My agreement with him was as long as you're asking, I will continue to help. We knew he would make mistakes and relapse and you know, do some things. But eventually, lo and behold, this uh, gentleman, uh, I think I'm happy to say he's been clean for probably going on four months. He actually did have a job, bounced around from jobs because being homeless was a very, was a legitimate challenge for him to hold a job. We got him clean. We got his mental health under check. And so now we've got him housing. um, And so he's on his way to, and he has goals to have a job and have his own place. Uh, and so he's really close. Right. And that's just amazing, the work that you guys do. And it's kind of behind the scenes that nobody sees. Uh, you took this gentleman from being homeless 
and a drug addict to getting him clean and sober, and now he's got a job and a house. I mean, it's just it's a real testament to the job that each of you guys do. It, it's amazing. This particular gentleman, I mean, did work with all three of us, sometimes all three of us together. Um, there were also a number of other people uh, that we connected him to, and then eventually he was finally empowered and motivated. But it took us as a community with other service providers to work with him, not give up on him, where everyone else had given up on him. And so I would say definitely while we connected him with those services and then he trusted us with that, which was great, then we kept reminding him and other service providers he's worth it. Right. And so we don't give up on those folks, uh, even if they've given up on themselves. And Will, um, you kind of touched on a little bit. So had this gentleman come about when you were working the road prior to the crew, what would have happened? Uh, he would have been in jail again, over and over. Right. He would have gone to jail. He would have been misdemeanors. He had been released in 24 hours, been back on the street. At some point, he probably would have take, been taken to an ER. Mm -hmm. They would have medically cleared him, discharged him within a few hours. And it would have just been a cycle it had, over and over. And um, who pays for that? <laughs> He's not paying for it. The, so the, the taxpayers pay for it in the end. pay for the jail stints and yeah. the ER visits and to where this is actually transforming somebody to be productive yeah. citizen. Yeah, and I, you know. Again, with the data, we track how many people were diverting from the jail or from the ER system, um, and it's a significant amount. We're at, and since February, just tracking the people we've diverted, we've saved over $2.8 million just inside the city limits of Cape Girardeau. Wow, that's incredible. And you want to think about that. Um, the average day for an ER is $13,000. Yeah. Uh, the average for the jail is $8,000. Not every person we divert because they don't need that diversion from an ER jail, but those that do, we definitely keep track of that. And it adds up quickly. And this gentleman in particular yeah. had gone to both. Um, so he may end up in jail, but he needed to be medically cleared. And so then he would go to the ER as well. So that's a, a huge expense, not just on city taxpayers, but also on him right. uh, and everyone who's involved. And so if we can divert appropriately to not get all those services that are unneeded, unnecessary for this person, we do consider that a, a success. On top of that, he got more motivated, empowered, that people didn't give up on him, and now he's been clean, sober, and employed and housed. Uh, that's just icing. Yeah, and and that brings up another good point, though, is if you break the law, if you're a law violator, there are consequences for that, regardless of the reason behind it. Uh, this isn't just a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you need to go to jail, you're still going to jail That's right. if you violate the law, correct? That's right. Absolutely, and, you know, depending on the severity of the crime, if it's – property damage or nonviolent crime, it's a misdemeanor. There's been occasions where we've visited with that person in the jail and figured out what's going on with them. And we've talked to the judge and the prosecutor and said, hey, he might still need a court date later on down the road, but let's get him out of jail right now and get him to the hospital or get him to the appropriate service and start so that when he does pay that fine or go to court, he's not right back where we started. We do the same thing over with the county jail as well. So they have what's called a jail navigator over there. And so if someone is incarcerated over there for, say, an extended period of time, we're able to share information with her. She's able to get that person into services, get that, those services started so that when they're released, and we're not starting over from 
square one. They've got an appointment set up possibly, or they got meds. A lot of times they don't even have insurance, so maybe she she can help them get Medicaid or Medicare or whatever it may need. Right. Awesome. Is there anything else that you guys would like to add, include? I would say that there are some other success stories, a wide range of that folks need to uh, hear what we do. They don't always have to be extreme, uh, like we just talked about, or, you know, helping a, a former vet uh, out of a, he barricaded himself with a gun and the the entire platoon was involved. And, and then I got involved and worked with him and made sure that not only he was safe, but the entire platoon was safe. Or getting a call person who was being considered a domestic terrorist or the police that I was able to talk with him on FaceTime to get him out safely. No one else was hurt. Those are extreme things. And and while they may have been sensational and people want to hear about those things, the majority of the time we deal with everyday people that may had some sort of psychological distress. They didn't know how to handle it or it's being shamed or avoided and now it's bubbling up. And so as Rachel was saying about as simple as depression can be easily managed and but it's left untreated or left without any support and then it blows up. Anxiety, people use synthetic drugs and not knowing what they do to their bodies, all those things. So it Truly, the majority of our work is with everyday Jan, Joe folks that something has gone a little awry or a lot awry. That has been a learning curve for us. We actually thought it would be more uh, drugs, uh, homelessness, those things, and it's not. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I do want to leave everybody with the Crisis Lifeline. You can always call or text 988 And then the crew direct line is 573-335-6621 and hit option number five. And that will take you directly to the crew if you've got any questions or concerns or anything you want to address. Thank you all very much for coming in and we'll see you guys down the road. Thank you, Bobby. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow along on Spotify, Podbean, Amazon Music, and many other outlets so you can catch the latest episode. Thanks for listening. 